Hello everyone and welcome to the Phileas Club, the show where we get people from around the world to tell you how they saw the news from the past month. This is episode 50 for November 2014. Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of the relaunch of the Phileas Club. Uh, this show has been off the air for about over two years now and uh, I'm, I recently left my job uh, to dedicate myself to podcasting and uh, I thought one of the shows I really wanted to do was this show and bring it back and so, well, that's just what I'm doing and what we're doing together. Uh, together with the co-hosts, I'm going to introduce in, in, introduce in a couple of seconds, but also together with you guys, uh, the listeners, because uh, this show is going to be supported by Patreon. And there's a Patreon that you can go check out. I'm sure there's going to be tons of links everywhere on the on the web pages and in the um, metadata of the MP3. Uh, but some people have already, before the show even relaunched, they've decided to um, to contribute to the Patreon, which I'm insanely grateful for. So thank you so much. Uh, I hope it's going to be worthy of your uh, support, and uh, I hope it's going to be going for a long time now. Um, so with that out of the way, uh, I'm going to introduce the co-hosts and then tell you a little bit about what the show is and what it isn't uh, if you're joining the show for the first time. So co-hosts, we have three wonderful people uh, with us today. Uh, the first of which is my partner in tech, not crime, but tech reporting, uh, Tom Merritt, here from the Daily Tech News Show, among other things on the internet. Uh, how's it going, Tom? Uh, it's going well, Patrick. I can cannot tell you how pleased I am that the Phileas Club is back. Selfishly, as a listener, I just have missed being able to hear it every every time you do it. So I'm I'm very excited to be back, and I'm very honored to be on the first return episode. Thank you. And you're you're sort of you know my go to person on anything I do uh, apparently for the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I can be your lead off guest. That's fine. Yeah. I like that. Very kind of you to be here. Uh, of course, Tom is from the U.S., uh, if you don't remember, West Coast. Uh, so he'll bring that perspective to the show. When last uh, you saw me on Phileas Club, I was in San Francisco, though. So now I'm in Los Angeles. So much different. <laughs> so you're going to be corrupted by the superficial uh, reality of the movie uh, city and industry, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we also have, as always, we sort of span the globe uh, in this show. Uh, and we also have Eric, Eric Olander from Vietnam of all places. I can't remember if you were already in Vietnam when we no. last recorded the show. No. The, so, uh, you know, like Tom, I was in a different city. I was in Paris, actually. I was the editor-in-chief <laughs> of uh, France 24, uh, but uh, fled the French now in Vietnam. <laughs> Uh, running a news network out here and uh, also podcasting and, and blogging and the like. Yes, you, you, you're still focused on uh, China and Africa? 
China and Africa, we just crossed a million downloads this week, uh, 250,000 on Facebook. So we're uh, we're moving ahead, uh, even though I'm in Vietnam, not in China or Africa, for that matter. Well, you're closer to, to China, I guess. So Exactly. You, yeah, that can help. Um, and so thank you so much, Eric, as well. And we have uh, Paolo, who's another returning guest uh, on the Felix Club. Paolo is joining us from South Africa. Um, how's it going? It's been also forever. It's been, I can't believe it's been two years. Thank you very much for inviting me back on the podcast. I'm excited that it's, it's back and hopefully bigger than ever. Well, you know, really, it was about the accent. I figured we need to have the South African accent on the show. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, you were the one to do it. Um, so thank you very much, Paolo, as well for being on the show. Uh, before we jump into the stories, a very quick word about what the show is and, as I was, I was saying, what it isn't. Um, so what the show is is a comment, uh, 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 roundtable discussion about the world news current affair topics that happened in the past month or so um, and we try to get people from different countries different cultures different backgrounds uh, from around the world and to discuss these topics mostly the, the common topics that we've all heard about with two things two aims uh, the first one is that we'll get some um, different perspectives on what we're discussing so you know i i realize that we have a very maybe not unified but if you if you always listen to one uh, kind of reporting you'll pretty much get the same Maybe not the same, but a unified view on a certain topic. Even if you're listening to different outlets from the same country, you certainly won't get the com a completely different take on the on the topic, or not usually. Um, and the other thing is, maybe sometimes we'll hear about things that are completely unknown to us and that are apparently very big deals uh, in in other countries around the world. Um, so. Basically, perspective, different perspectives, different angles uh, on, on stories we hear, hopefully enriching our knowledge of these, of these, uh, these events is the aim of the show. Uh, so what it isn't, though, is we're not journalists or, well, I guess... Some of us are. Uh, Eric uh, is a journalist and Tom has a, a journalistic background for sure. Um, but we're not reporting on the news, right? I don't even think we're quite commenting on the news. It's just a bunch of people getting around a table and saying, hey, here's how we uh, perceived and how we uh, discussed the news in our neck of the woods, uh, the woods being the world. Um, and of course, we can have some journalistic uh, uh, elements to our discussions, but it's not the primary goal. It's really to think, uh, to say, our news, our media is reporting th this news like that, with this angle, with this kind of uh, uh, discussion, and hopefully that makes for an interesting discussion on the show as well. Is that a fair assessment of what the show is supposed to be, What, as you guys see it? Well, that's what made it successful in the past, so I don't see any reason why to stop now, right? Yeah, I, I, I think so too. Yeah, I think you're right. It's we're not reporting, we're not analyzing in the in the technical sense. Uh, right. But, you know, we're just having a conversation. I like it. Mm -hmm. All right. Um so there's the show has been off for 2 years, so I think maybe anything in the past 2 years is fair game. Um but certainly there have been um really prominent topics that have uh surfaced pretty much 
everywhere um, uh, around the world. And I think one topic which is getting a tiny bit out of the uh, news cycle, at least here in France, but I think warrants uh, uh, discussion because it's close enough to us that it's still significant, um, but it's also a worldwide con concern or discussion. Um, I, I would like to talk about the Ebola crisis. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, I was going to say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start, but I'm wondering if we shouldn't let uh, the American start uh, and let Tom discuss how the Ebola uh, uh, thing. Well, you got, you've got somebody it. who's actually on the continent in which the crisis <laughs> is taking place, but you want to go to B first? I, I don't know. It seems like, you know, the Americans have, are, have been making a much bigger deal. Uh, but you're right. You're is that, right. That's, interesting. that's interesting. That's interesting because I actually think that from within the United States that it has been it was way overhyped here uh, considering the danger. So it's interesting yeah. that that actually is the perception outside of the United States. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Tom, as well. I, so, I was I was in the States uh, recently uh, for the I just came back to South Africa. I was in the States for about five months doing some, some work there. And um, when the story broke, the Ebola story broke in the media, I mean, it, it was, like you said, kind of blown out of proportion. And when I came home back to South Africa, I, it was a completely different perspective on it. So, um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's so a how very, was it? Well, so when I was in the States um, – I was, I was doing a lot of traveling within the States and watching a lot of local story, local media reporting on the Ebola um, crisis. And, well, that's one of the things, they, the words they use, crisis. And mm. um, it, it just became very apparent to me how much they wanted to blow it out of proportion. And maybe that had something to do with there was just not that much else in the media to report about. But everybody was panicked about it. I mean, we were, they were talking about closing schools. I think a couple of schools in Texas closed. And I was like, well, this is a world away from you guys. Like, why are you so, so concerned? I mean, there is concern to be had, but I think they, they really blew it out of proportion. So how was it when you, when you were looking at your you know, local uh, South African, or maybe even, I don't know if, how much of an insight you have into African reporting in general, but you know, you're, you're in Africa. So basically you're, our, you're our man in Africa. So anything <laughs> African is, is your thing. Um, well, it was, it, it was interesting because a lot of people even said to me, Oh, aren't you concerned about going to South Africa? Aren't you concerned about the, the Ebola virus getting you? And I'm like, well, if you think about it, Johannesburg, where I live is further away from, um, a lot of where the outbreaks were then Paris or London. So it's not really that close to it in any regard. And there's a whole bunch of countries in between us. So um wasn't concerned at all. And, and when I arrived, I mean, it was just one of those articles in the news. It wasn't the breaking crisis that the Americans had portrayed it to be, you know. Mm. It's It certainly was similar in, in France, uh, meaning... Uh, It was reported on for sure, and there was some legitimate amount of concern. Um, there might have been a little bit, a couple of inflammatory uh, uh, pieces of reporting that were a little bit over the top, but I don't think anyone genuinely ever feared for their <laughs> for their life. And I'm laughing as I'm I'm saying it. I shouldn't be, uh, but that's that's the way it felt like. 
for it here in in France, we were being reasonable, looking at it, and especially knowing, you know, there's a lot of, of issues of education, like knowing how Ebola is transmitted puts your fears to rest immediately. Like when you know it's not airborne, you're you're basically like, all right, so as long as I'm not, you know, kissing someone or, you know, swimming around in their bodily fluids, I should be fine. Um, yeah, And it seems but- like that part of the reporting, it was completely left out of a lot of the... American, but yeah, Eric, maybe. But it was, but but again, this this was only part about Ebola in the United States. Um, part of it was though that you know about the confidence in government to actually do something right. And so when the CDC started coming out and and really having to backtrack on the information they were giving, and then we found out that in Texas, the in Texas, after we had been told that the United States was ready to deal with this, everything was ready. We had the best healthcare system in the world to be able to deal with this. This is well, not that's, Liberia. Well, that's your first, you know, that's your well, first well, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but this is the narrative in the U.S. Hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, things go south in the emergency room in Texas, where they turned away uh, the Liberian gentleman. Where they, when they, when he was admitted, he uh, was not dealt with properly. And all of a sudden, confidence in the system started to shake. And you're also dealing with the United States right now at a period in its history where it feels extraordinarily vulnerable. And so it's interesting that the narratives about ISIS conflated with the narratives about uh, Ebola came at the same time as the elections. And so what ended up happening was, you know, Fox News and, and Republicans and a lot of people kind of rode that wave of fear. And, and So you Americans think it's politically really, motivated? No, I don't think I think it's all, you know, this is all a soup. And, and there's a lot of different things in that soup. But fear is one of the things right now that emerge from the United States when the rest of the world, you know, where, you know, here in Southeast Asia, communicable diseases are a daily threat. It's a real thing here. You have heat, animals and people next to each other all the time. And yet the panic that came out of the United States was disproportionate to the threat. And a lot so of people, I think, the, as you saw in Europe. How, how was the uh, the reporting and the, well, I don't want to say crisis anymore, but uh, how was the, the, the event uh, handled in Vietnam then? Vietnam is terrified of Ebola, and but understandably so, because Vietnam is a country that is, you know, at the 50% mark in terms of, of wealth compared to all of Africa. So half of Africa is wealthier, half of Africa is poorer. Uh, so it knows that if Ebola lands here, it can't do anything about it. It doesn't have the resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have a lot of diseases that, that are on that front. Uh, but in, in developing world countries, they're, they're terrified of, a, of, a, of something like what's happening in Liberia happening here because they don't have the resources. And at the end of the day, we also know that the international community will not come to its aid the same way that it would for other diseases. I mean, Ebola, the, you know, look at what I, the I, response I, has been. It's been quite minimal relative to other diseases. I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's only about the ability for um, the government to, to tackle the problem. I would also say it's got a lot to do with the environment that um, the disease um, it, it accumulates Thriving, in. Like, yeah. yeah, like in, in South Africa, we've got a very large percentage of um, impoverished people. Uh, and it's very unfortunate, but these are the areas, these are the places that the diseases start to thrive in because they don't. The people who are living in these areas don't have access to immediate health care. They don't have access to clean running water. You know, so the majority of Africa lives in this in this state, and it's very difficult for even countries like South Africa to manage it. Even though we have the infrastructure to possibly deal with it, it you can't solve the root of the problem, which is 
these areas that disease, and I'm sure it's the same in, in Vietnam, where people live and a lot of diseases thrive normally, not, not to mention major diseases like Ebola. So I'm, I, I guess I'm curious, was the reporting informative in the sense that, again, it was explaining the way the, 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 the disease spreads, like saying what you should do if you think uh, you, you, you're, you know, you have an unusually high fever or like, or was it, especially in South Africa, I guess you addressed it a little bit earlier saying you're really far away from, um, the centers of, of the crisis, but it, it wasn't really, a, a an immediate concern, um, for, in your media. No, it didn't. It, it, I mean, it is a concern and it is something that I think they made everybody aware of. Mm. But we already have uh, um, a problem with AIDS in South Africa, mm. so people are very aware about disease and keep. I mean, it's part of it's part of our, our education in schools on how to keep. You know, like if somebody's cut themselves, don't um, don't assist them unless you have gloves or the proper medical um, equipment to to treat them because you don't want to contract a disease from them. Mm. So. It's not so to it's say, already part of the culture to be it's, careful. Yeah, it's already to, part of our yeah. culture. So um, it wasn't blown nearly out of proportion as it was in the States, um, but it was made very aware. And it was interesting when I came into South Africa, um, they have a monitor as you walk in through passport control that is taking your heat temperature, um, trying hmm. to differentiate people who have, um, you know, high high temperature, maybe a disease or something. And, I, and there's a guy watching it. And, and the, so the if, is, if the temperature is too high, the sirens start ringing, you get a, a dozen squadrons of SWAT people pointing their guns at you, right? <laughs> That's the way it goes, right? Correct? I, I, oh, I don't know what happens when they oh. find something. <laughs> no, but they've been doing that for over a decade here in Asia after the SARS crisis, mm. that if you have a fever, you don't fly. Um, right. Which is not an unreasonable thing, considering that you're going to be in a enclosed in, in tube for for ten hours, you know, circulating air. Uh, but that's been since SARS; they've been doing that here. So the rest of the world, in some ways, is just catching up with Asia on that front. Mm. Right. And and I think we had introduced it as well a while ago because I remember seeing the screen at the airport, but I never paid much attention to it until I saw them proactively looking, I suppose, for for mm. signs of. In the airport. But I guess in these major hubs where people are uh, traveling in South Africa, they are very proactive in trying to discover anybody, but nothing to, to blow whistles and alarms off at this mm. stage. I mean, you know, there hasn't been a, a case in South Africa, so not a yeah. big concern at this stage. So, Tom, um, <laughs> is it how real realistic is our perception of that's completely super meta like our perception of the americans perception of ebola is they're panicking and like you know being completely unreasonable is that just us getting the most extreme examples and going like oh those crazy americans they're so funny <laughs> or is it really something that happened uh you know as we discussed 
Well, it's hard for me to say. I mean, I, I, this is always my, my difficulty in answering these because questions. Because you only watch BBC. <laughs> I read the BBC. I listen to The Economist and Dan Carlin. And that is those are the main sources uh, of my news and, and, and RSS feeds and this and that. Uh, my experience of this was being well aware of the outbreak in Guinea and Sierra Leone and Liberia well before I heard anyone else talking about it. But that's perfectly normal. I, I, I read news that I don't hear people in general talking about on the street uh and then suddenly all my all all my sources were of u.s news were starting to talk about it and and friends were starting to talk about it and it immediately became hyped and i think it's because in many ways exactly what eric was talking about and the one thing i would add is u.s television news particularly but news in general is very much about grabbing viewers grabbing headlines grabbing eyeballs uh, and this is a kind of story that's that's controversial and 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 is going people are going to look at and say, oh my gosh, a disease. How do I not get it right? Uh, mm. And a very infectious disease, but, Ebola. Yeah, since the '90s has been something that's you know very dramatic in its symptoms, et cetera. But uh, I guess so the one the one well the one the one thing I want to mention is that I had a friend come over, and this was when I first became aware that it was sort of in the in the general populace's mind. She said, "How about that Ebola?" And I was like, "Yeah, there seems to be a lot of overreacting going on." Uh, and Shepard Smith of Fox News, by the way, had just done a three minute "You don't need to worry" piece, trying to mm. calm people down. And my friend's like, "Yeah, but my my wife is a nurse, and." They gave her a, a kind of an Ebola breakdown, you know, like what to look for, et cetera, training. And she's she's frightened now. And I thought that was really interesting <laughs> is that it wasn't coming from the media. The media was sort of giving her the background anxiety, but getting the responsible training, which a nurses should get because it's like, hey, you know what? They, we're dealing with this in Texas right now. Who knows? We might have to deal with it. So let's be ready. Uh, raised her stress levels, even though she was a trained professional. Hmm. Yeah, that's. <laughs> surprising, I guess, is a kind of way of putting it. But Tom, um, don't you feel like um, if it wasn't blown up in the media, let's say the media element was removed and she was just given the training, they said, hey, this is topic, this is happening in the world right now, we feel it's prevalent for you to be aware of it, um, she would have been as concerned or do you think the media is, has aided in making her paranoid about it? Right. I mean, it's hard to say, but it, it seems like she would be less worked mm, right yeah. there, there's sort of this background level that that boosts the anxiety is at least that's that's my thinking on it but i i do think that it was it was very telling and i think it's under uh mentioned that fox news was the one who had an anchor coming out saying you are not going to get ebola you do not need to worry about ebola yeah, stop freaking yeah. out Yes, but Tom, with all due respect, though, while Shepard Smith did a responsible thing there, Bill O'Reilly in primetime, who has, I sure. think, probably five times the audience that Shepard Smith has, was saying exactly was the, the opposite. Was the cause for Shepard Smith to he, have. He was absolutely, yeah, no, he was the one saying. saying, you got to shut the borders down, cut the flights off, you know, and the rest <laughs> of Fox was going hysterical. So... Okay. You know, was it was I mean, it different on other channels, though? Were, no. like, CNN doing the responsible thing? No, they were like all it, doing the no, same. They gave thing. Okay, I mean, they were all using the graphics, time, yeah. and they were all using the fear yeah. music and the whole thing. So, what is it? Did they? Okay, two questions before we move on. Let's not spend the whole episode on Ebola. Um, first question: Is this a function of t the twenty-four hour news cycle that you know they have to be talking about something all the time, and basically the um, the 
uh, commercialization of news. And second question, were they also doing the responsible thing at the same time, saying this is how you catch it, this is what you need to do if you think you have it or if you encounter it and, you know, doing some maybe more uh, level-headed reporting? Uh, I don't but know. Tom, Tom a bit, oh, go ahead. Uh, either one of you. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my limited exposure was was just to that Shepard Smith Fox News thing, okay. and so uh, yes, they were doing both things, as Eric points out. They were both yeah. inciting people, but also <laughs> telling them the things that they they needed to do. And yeah, it's a, it's entirely about the twenty four hour news cycle. What was most telling to me was this was a story months before they picked it up. Uh, it only became a story when it looked like it was getting out of control and the WHO was starting to say, hey, I'm not sure we have enough resources uh, to handle this. And then it became, ah, now that's interesting. A runaway outbreak. Let's play, let's play yeah. to that. And now that it's back under control and it looks like uh, you know, the outbreak may be spreading to Mali, that's of concern. But even in Guinea, uh, it's starting to, to you know, come under control. Nigeria never gets enough credit for having fought it off. Uh, and and that, that was impressive, the way they shut it down. I, Which, I, we, don't, way, we don't hear the, about it anymore. The, the well, issues, it seems most of the issues of, you know, the, the disease spreading aren't because this is some kind of a weird mutant, you know, zombie virus. It's because there are, you know, rights and uh, hygiene practices which are not appropriate in those uh, countries. Well, um, and there's places out in the forest where, where communities don't believe it. They're yeah. like, that's a government lie. We're not letting, of yeah, course, yeah, we're exactly. not letting you in here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, I mean, on one sense, blaming the 24-hour news cycle would be one thing. But, uh, you know, France has a 24-hour news cycle, and it's got Itele, and it's got uh, France 24, and it's got a number of 24-hour channels. It's commercial mm. as well. Uh, you know, Japan has a 24-hour news cycle. Hong Kong has a 24-hour news cycle. South Africa, in fact, has 24-hour news channels as well. So this idea that it's the 24-hour news cycle that's causing the panic, uh, I don't think is entirely accurate, only because lots of countries have that. What's yeah, that, in the United that's very States. true. I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, it's, and, it's they, right and they're all commercial as well, and they're all gunning yeah, for money. True. They've got helicopters in the air doing, you know, all the other things, just like the United States. Um, you know, one one point of small difference that Tom would, would I would I disagree with Tom just a little bit here, with all due respect, um, is that <laughs> the issue isn't actually under control in West Africa. Um, Americans have gotten bored of the story. So it's not mm. being covered anymore. The fear is gone. That doesn't mean it's under control. It just means I, that more Africans are dying and that they don't care anymore. Because no, Eric, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm, I'm referring to the World Health Organization saying today that they're stable in Guinea. So as, yeah, oh, in Guinea. As that's this, a fair point. Yeah. As this stops being like it's spreading more and more and more and more. And that's why I mentioned Mali, because that's an area of concern. Yeah. The U.S. gets bored of it. So I'm entirely in agreement with you, which is yeah, like, yeah. oh, there we go. OK, no, well, that's only those point. people but, are dying now. Yeah. yeah. Well, now it's and to be to fair, it's the- not. Yeah, it's not it's not a big story in France anymore either, uh, because same thing, you know, it's get, it's gotten a little bit boring and the it, it doesn't concern us directly anymore. Um, and now we know we're it, not it, all going to die Ebola. So, it, OK, whatever. It's the same in South Africa. I mean, we we uh, it's it used to be quite prevalent in, in world news, but now it's it's i mean the only thing that that's come up recently that's happened in in our reporting has really been the the theft of the 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 blood in the one transport that happened um did you guys hear about that didn't no i i didn't there was um let me see if i can pull it up here there was a there was a theft where they stole a couple of vials of blood i think during a transportation 
Um, and crime is always a, a, a topic of discussion in South Africa. And um, this was one thing where they were saying, um, I'm trying to find out exactly which country it was, but um, they they were transporting samples of of the, of the virus in, I think it was Guinea, and um, they uh, they got hijacked and stolen. And wow. that came up. Are you news. sure this isn't a, uh, a trailer for next, the next James Bond? <laughs> <laughs> well, it it, it, right. uh, it was definitely an interesting story, but uh, and the the authorities were pleading with um, with the criminals to return the virus, and they could they can keep whatever else they had taken <laughs> mm. and just want the, the, the virus back, you know, wow. but uh, I, I don't the think gun, that leave they, the virus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that they actually knew what they were, they were taking. And I think it was just probably oh. a common theft because what they were saying was that the transport used was just a regular taxi. And it, and, oh. and in the, in the theft, it highlighted one of the issues with, with how these organizations are dealing with the, with the the virus, you know, they're using mm. a regular taxi to transport highly contagious materials in in, in an area that's already got issues, and yeah. um, they, so that uh, would make it completely unbelievable as a James Bond movie. They, no one would believe that <laughs> the, the organization would use a taxi. I'm looking at it. a Red Cross courier among nine passengers sharing a taxi. Wow. Yeah. The All right, let's let's not spend too much time uh, on Ebola uh, because we have other things to cover as well. Unless someone wants to say something more, I, I sort of cut you off, Paolo. Here, no, that's that's fine. Okay. All right. All right. Um, I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about that again in the in future episodes. Uh, but for now, uh, I want to talk about something that surprised, I think, a lot of people. And that's the fact that in the two, two years uh, the show has been off the air, apparently uh, we turned our clocks and calendars back to the Cold War era uh, because Russia has become the big villain again. Um, and obviously that has been a huge amount of uh, – that has been a huge topic of discussion uh, um, in France, maybe again, not in the super recent uh, weeks, but certainly over the past few months, um, there's obviously the issue in Crimea has made headlines. Uh, but even more than that, the fact that uh, Putin is has become very adversarial towards the West um, and the fact that Russia is becoming a... Um, well, I'm jesting, I'm jo joking with the Cold War thing, but it's not completely un inaccurate. Um, there is a feeling that it might, if the situation keeps going like that, we might find ourselves in a in a world uh, um, structure with Russia and a few of its allies. Uh, being against the entirety of the Western world. Um, so, all right, uh, who wants to go first? Maybe I, I would be curious how that relates to, uh, you know, China and maybe Asia in, in general. Uh, so I'm going to give the talking stick to Eric. 
Uh, well, it's very related to China. I, I don't agree with this whole narrative that we're hearing about going back to the Cold War. And it's something a very simple, convenient. It feels familiar and comfortable for journalists and the public to kind of, you know, you know, warm up to a, to a fire and feel good about because that was a war that we understood and that we felt good. And it was one that mm. we won, too. So that's a narrative that we also like. It, unfortunately, it's a lot messier and much more complicated than that. Uh, I think what it, it reflects is the multipolarization of, of geopolitics. That is, the, we're seeing the end of the American era of global hegemony. Uh, we're seeing the end of the era of American supremacy. America will still continue to be a superpower, but it will be one among many different poles around the world. So what was interesting earlier this, this year to kind of think about how this is manifesting itself is that within one week, the same week, uh, two Chinese J-21 uh, fighter aircraft went up to an American surveillance plane and showed their belly, which is a very aggressive, very aggressive maneuver to show that you have armed weapons on the belly of your plane. And then they pulled away. In that same week, uh, Russian fighter jets did something very similar in, in, in the Ukrainian area where NATO jets were flying around. And so what we're seeing is that the Chinese and the, and the Russians are they have aligned interests. Now, remember, these two are not allies by any stretch of the imagination. They have old, old, uh, you know, grievances with one another, and there's a lot of distrust. But uh, don't forget that Vladimir Putin signed a $400 billion gas deal with the Chinese. So he's insulated in many ways from a lot of the pressure that's coming from the West. Uh, however, what's he's not insulated you from? Financially, yes. Yeah. At least from the Chinese, who will suck up as much uh, much of his uh, of his natural resources as they as they can sell. That being said, he didn't bank on oil being at seventy five dollars a barrel, and that's really going to be a big challenge for him. Uh, but the, the 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 Chinese and the Russians are pushing the system away from an American led system as fast as they can. Um, they want to change the rules of the game. They don't believe that the rules of the game are in their interest right now. And China, certainly, as the emerging economic superpower of the world, uh, becoming the number one economy next year or the year after, depending on, on what, you, what statistics you look at, um, wants to change everything about the system. And the, China, and the Russians are, are going to take advantage of that. So how is it looked at uh, in Vietnam? Or, you know, if you have a... a, a view of Asia in, in general, I realize how silly Oh, that, no, that I mean, is Viet this is right in the middle of it. I mean, Vietnam is a country that, you know, gets most of its weapons from the Russians, uh, but at the same time is confronted with, you know, real tensions with the Chinese in the past year. Uh, the Chinese, you know, have been trying to push into the South China Sea and to really push the Americans out of the South China Sea area. And the territorial disputes here are, are real. And this is something that most Americans and even Europeans are not focusing on. Um, that World War III will probably start in Asia if it starts at all. But it, Asia is where yeah, let's not, you've got you know. <laughs> the, the Japanese. Well, no, but it's real. I mean, what you, you think about the, the Senkaku Diao Islands dispute, you've got the three largest economies in the world with as much military hardware all within eye distance of each other. Hmm. And it is very, very real that they all have three have fighter jets up at the air at the same time, almost 24 hours a day. They have drones underneath the waters going after each other almost 24 hours a day. So this is, is that, a very real kind of tensions that are here. And, and that's and what's, what's on the news? Like it's, uh, hey, guys, it's, we're it's like... It's all that's on the news that's out okay. here. I mean, this is the most sensitive issue out here, the territorial disputes. Now, at the same time, you know, the United States and Vietnam are getting very, very close to each other. The Vietnamese are buying subs from the Russians. Uh, everybody, the Vietnamese, are cozying up with the Indians against the Chinese. But at the same time, 
The Chinese are developing their relationships in, in, in other ways. They've launched the Asian Infrastructure Bank uh, to displace the Asian Development Bank and U.S. and Japan, Japanese power in this part of the world. So, so many different pieces of the puzzle are being moved right now. And Putin is taking advantage of that, that we're in a very unstable phase of global history. And the United States is impotent in Ukraine. The United States is impotent in so many parts of in, in the South China Sea to do things. It can't go into these places. It's not going to launch a shooting war uh, over Ukraine with, with Russia. And everybody mm. knows that. It's, so, yeah. In, in, oh, go ahead, Paolo. Well, I, I don't think uh, the United States is willing to get into a war with anybody at this stage. I mean, the stuff that's happened in the Middle East has kind of, you know, left them a bit bumped and bruised. And it, it, it seems as though the Ukraine is, is this topic of discussion is how much is everybody willing to get involved? How much is everybody mm. willing to put on the line for is it an, an internal struggle or is it a struggle that the uh, Russians are just trying to take an advantage of? So how is it – do, do you hear a lot about it in, in South Africa? Meaning it seems well, like it, it's – quite literally almost half a world away uh so is it even a concern or well it's, it's not really a concern because like you said it's half a world away but the, I, I guess the concerning factor is how much do are is everybody willing to get involved and who's going to get involved mm -hmm. but well we know the, the answer to that which is not much Yeah, I I'm guess not, now we, we know. This has been a, how long has the Ukraine crisis gone on and what's happened? The, the, mm -hmm. the West and the international community have said a lot, spoken a lot, how outrageous it is, but what have they really done? Yeah. Right. And that's all we hear on this side of the world is really, this is what's going on. These are the atrocities that are happening. And um, here are tidbits, but it's not really much more than, let's say, the Ebola virus that's being mm. spoken about. I mean, <laughs> it is a t it's a world topic. But it's not – and we've had a lot of local news that's kind of blown up recently. So it's really taken a sideline in terms of um, what's been going on. Hmm. It's interesting that you make the comparison to, uh, to, to the Ebola crisis and that they get about the same amount of play. That's not something I would have expected. But Patrick, uh, one, one very quick point to bring up and then yeah. I'll kind of step back on this is that Russia and China together have effectively – Uh, neutered the UN Security Council as a as a venue to do anything anymore. So that there's no more ability to be able to get any consensus on the UN Security Council. So the United Nations yeah. as a body to handle a lot of these disputes is now on the sidelines, whether it's Syria, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's even things like Ebola. Uh, the UN Security Council used to play a much more prominent role before Uh, the, the Chinese and, 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 and the Russians were um, ascendant in many ways. And, and now that body is, is gone. It's, it's, it's been taken out as, as, a, as a player. And that's, again, another example of how d diminishing U.S. power uh, is fueling in this in many ways. Because, you know, during the Cold War, the United States was able to, to really push these international bodies to do what it wanted to, to do. Uh, and, and now that's not the case anymore. I guess... It, from looking at it from France, it's also... Uh, so, my wife is Finnish, and obviously... Well, not obviously. I didn't know that before I <laughs> I married her. You but, didn't know uh, she was Finnish? I knew she was Finnish. I didn't know how incredibly... Um, I don't want to say afraid, but important uh, Russia was to Finland, uh, because I didn't really know Finland all that much. I'm I'm checking that she's not 
right here listening to me uh so she can't you know <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah anyway so um but yeah the the so i'm getting a, a lot of uh different opinions and analysis on this uh from france it's kind of like looking at it cautiously and kind of not really throwing our hands up in the air, but as you were saying, Eric, it's not like the UN can do much. It's not like the EU can do a lot. Um, and and at the same time, it's the the if we don't, huh, there's if we don't let Putin have this, if we take a strong stand, and I don't know how much of this is is actually. Uh, um, relayed everywhere but looking at the situation in russia it's not easy to see what alternative to putin there is part partially because he's silencing all of the opposition opposition but the oligarchy is still very much uh in play in russia so just thinking well putin is crazy we have to you know get rid of him and that by the way that wasn't a, a view uh that I think anyone had until a few years ago on his first uh, 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 presidency, he was a lot more, uh, uh, he seemed a lot more reasonable. But now there's this idea that he can't, you know, he's veering towards a little bit more of a uh, uh, old Russia uh, kind of of, uh, uh, attitude. But we don't think there's anything we can do if we replace him. <laughs> That's yeah, but even our, thinking but you, that we could, you, you know. You, you French people are as hypocritical as the Americans are because on the one <laughs> hand, you will sit there and say how awful it is that he's violating human rights and that he's invading other countries. But at the same time, would you please buy our warships? Sure, oh, sure. we have a jobs program. Oh, at the same time, of we course. really need your low-cost gas no, that course. we bought locked into and long-term contracts. And so they don't really mean it in, your, in Western Europe. No, of or course. In particularly in France. And so that's, to me, a little bit of the duplicity of all of the, the kind of shock, horror, shock, horror coming out of Western Europe, which is they can't do anything because your apartment tonight is being heated by Russian natural gas. That's no, just I the could, awful, well, painful reality that we're dealing with, or maybe, maybe Tunisian bit, natural gas, but still, nonetheless. Yeah, a little I'll, bit less in France. I think we, we have a little bit less of that, you know, reliance on foreign energy um, in France, but it, where it's still important, yes. but not as much in other, uh, as in other European countries, mostly but because if, we have... If, if Germany had to pay, you know, huge yeah. amounts of natural gas, that would have a direct effect on France. Of of course. Um, but the, the other side of the thing uh, that I get from my Finnish half is um, the concern that you shouldn't poke the, the Russian bear too much. And there's another thing which my wife keeps telling me, which I'm not sure I understand quite yet, um, which is the West really does not understand Russia. Mm. And that's a failing for Russian for for the, this the managing this crisis, and it's a real impediment to actually trying to find a solution, because there's there there's hmm, Russia is a country that is very old that has a very important you know history and culture, and that seems trivial to say, but there's a, a lot of. Uh, um, there's a lot of misunderstanding. We're looking at Russia and thinking, well, we wouldn't do that or we wouldn't take it that way or we wouldn't. 
but it's really not a, a, a productive way of looking at it because uh, within Russia, there are reasons, there are dynamics, there are... Uh, um, uh, Uh, there is pride, there is all of this coalescing together that makes, and of course, a lot of other issues. I mean, for sure, Putin isn't a saint, but he is getting some support when we, looking at it from here, would probably not be supporting someone like that. Um, so there's there's that as well, which is very personal, and I think uh, also fueled by the fact that uh, Finland is is a lot more afraid of Russia than um, the rest of Western Europe. Um, so I studied it, Russian language uh, for three years in oh, college. I forgot about that. Yeah. And the one, the one thing that you just said that, that struck uh, a memory for me is this narrative in Russian history and from, from many of the Russians that I talked to about Russia having a, a bit of an inferiority complex slash superiority complex with Europe. Yeah. Uh, where throughout its history, it was constantly wanting to be seen as important in Europe, but then at the same time wanting to be seen as more important than Europe. Like, it, <laughs> we are our own thing. We don't need Europe to be important. We are Russia. But at the same time feeling like, but we should also be considered just as important as France or England. Mm. Uh, and the, the sort of fascination with French culture, especially uh, in the czarist era of Russia. And I think that's why you see a lot of this hankering in Russia for the old days. And and Vladimir Putin is a consummate politician. He plays to that. He's like trying to call up the good things from the era in which the Soviet Union was at least felt like it was riding high and, and the most important power in the world and saying we are we are we are returning to that you know we are a strong russia hmm. and i think that's one of the misunderstandings at least in the media i don't know how much of a misunderstanding the government actually has on this but but in the media that that narrative is lost so talking about the media um how much of cnn and uh, fox news fox news report <laughs> fox news uh fox news reporting are you know, um, Cold War is back. The devil Putin is coming to take your children and that kind of thing. I I don't know, but that seems to be what I hear. I mean, uh, from my perspective, the most interesting reporting or commentary, it's not really reporting that I've heard on this, was from Dan Carlin's Common Sense. And he was talking about how that is the narrative that he keeps hearing in media, which is Cold War. And he said, this isn't Cold War. This is World War I. Uh, we have a lot of powers, not two powers, and we have a lot of interlocking alliances. Uh, and and to me, and this is not what Carlin said, but to me, China and Russia feel a lot like England and France, two historical enemies. Well, and maybe enemies is too harsh a word for Russia and China, but not necessarily friends Ooh. who are sort of being uh, moved into an alliance of convenience in some ways. Against, you know, an older power, Europe, that was, you know, broken for a while during World War II, like Germany, but is now reunified and, and getting stronger. Uh, the parallels break down here and there. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's definitely more of this complex situation like we had before World War I than the very clear Cold War. It's the U.S. versus the Soviet Union. It's That's funny. Right. There's um, there's a lot of that uh, in another way in in France as well. In the sense that a lot of people are thinking, well, it will never escalate 
that far, which obviously is very, you know, reminiscent of World War One. Right. Um, it's no, so. it's in no one's interest to have a war was yeah. heard a lot before World War One. And, mm-hmm. and you're starting to hear that now, too. Yeah. All right. But uh, I, 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 sorry. Oh, Patrick. go ahead, Paolo. I, I'd have to agree with what you were saying earlier, Patrick, where you were talking about. Oh, thank you. Please what, keep speaking. What, <laughs> the, I don't think the West really does understand how the 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 regular Russian feels about what's happening in the Ukraine, um, because us as um, I mean, take for example South Africa. We have a country within us called Lesotho. And I was talking about this with my friends earlier today about how how would we feel about taking over Lesotho. Um, it's, it's a small country um, within us and I don't know if people would, and obviously it's a very different, it's a very different um, analogy, but the, the, how would the people of South Africa react to taking over a small country that people don't really want to get into a war about? Um, and the feeling I met was very indifferent. I mean, people would be like, a lot of the people I talked to said, yeah, I mean, it would be great because then it would be part of South Africa. You know, we'd be able to take, build infrastructure, take care of the country because it's, a, it's in a bit of an unfortunate situation, that country. And I, I don't know if that translates to Russia. Do the people generally think... Um, yeah, it's fine. Like it's just something that that should be part of Russia again. Or are they trying to, um, like Tom saying, um, build back the old Russia, the the way it was mm. before. Take back all the old countries that were part of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Well, there's a little bit of pride for sure that plays into it, and and there's certainly uh, uh, people from within the now annexed uh, uh, old. Ukraine that felt well we're Russians we want to be Russians again so um yeah there, there's right, a there's a, a predominant Russian population and and some people uh, point out that that's a lot of the reason for that is because of Stalin but in the yeah. in the eastern part of Ukraine it's heavily Russian and Crimea was part of Russia until Khrushchev gave it to Ukraine mm-hmm. Uh, and it was also part of Turkey. In fact, there uh, there were some interesting articles that came out when they first annexed uh, Crimea that said that an old treaty between, I think, the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire allowed Turkey to go take it back now, now that Russia had taken it from Ukraine somehow. <laughs> Thankfully, that didn't happen. Yeah. It's uh, another thing I guess we can mention uh, as we're moving to another topic um, is the fact that in France it did spark a few other debates about uh, sovereignty and uh, in the case of, you know, the, the Basque, I don't know how you say it in English, uh, Pays Basque in French is Basque country. Basque. Um, Basque. Basque. Okay. The Basques, uh, who would have a similar claim. Basically, they're saying, well, we want to be independent. Who are you to tell us we can't be? In the same way that, you know, when you say, well, there are, you know, the, the people of a certain part of Crimea uh, want to be Russians, there should be a certain amount of auto-determination in there. Um, and so when you look at this and, and apply it to the Basques, they're like, we don't want to be with in this stupid French country. Uh, let's let's just have a vote, and if we want to be independent, then you have to let us go. Obviously, it's never going to happen, um, or it, it would be very surprising. But um, yeah, that that came up as well. 
Um, talking about nations and uh, sovereignty and uh, moving from country to country, that link is tenuous at best, uh, I think the last and most uh, current topic I want to tackle um, is the issue of nationals leaving their own country to go and join the jihad um, in the Middle East. And that has been a very hot topic. Well, I guess I shouldn't say a very hot topic. It's been um, discussed uh, quite a bit in France and in French media, but maybe surprisingly not as in a super inflammatory way. Um, it's been met with... Uh, so if you don't know what we're talking about, um, there are a lot of people, well, not a lot, but dozens of people, maybe even more, um, leaving France and other countries as well uh, to go fight the uh, Islamist uh, extremist jihad in Syria and other Middle Eastern countries. Um And that is something that, for some reason, the country is waking up to now. It's been going on for, you know, increasingly in the past few years. Uh, it's always happened, but now it's become a, a, a topic of concern, maybe because of the renewed media exposure of ISIS and such groups, uh, because of their very public and graphical um, uh, uh, actions. Um, and the most... Not the most surprising, but France has a very um, a very large uh, uh, Maghreb, like Northern African population, because of uh, what happened after World War II and the the um, links with uh, colonial empires and the fact that we got a lot of people from those countries to help rebuild uh, the country. Um, actually, after World War II, um, and so. It wouldn't surprise a lot of people, maybe maybe uh, not not correctly, but it wouldn't surprise a lot of French people to hear that some of these uh, uh, kids now that are third, second or third generation uh, Arabs um, are are for cultural reasons a, a few of them get enrolled in extremists uh, groups and move to uh, the Middle East to fight the jihad. Not that it's, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be a, a racist way of youth, viewing things, but it wouldn't surprise people because of the cultural heritage. They would be more um, uh, subject to these kinds of, uh, of, of things. What is surprising, I think, to a lot of people is to learn that there are French... Uh, um, uh, uh, of course, these kids, these North African kids are French as well, but French, uh, uh, how do you say it? Like French parents, French generational French people that have been French for a long time um, that are, to put things bluntly, you know, white suburban or, you know, middle class kids um, or not necessarily middle class, but uh, kids who actually go and fight the jihad as well and go get enrolled and that have uh, uh, completely uh, French, uh, uh, old French names and that you would never suspect could be subject to that kind of enrollment. And that's something that we're learning now when seeing pictures, you know, from these uh, uh, videos and, and realizing, you know, the, the media and the police are uh, finding these kids, kids who had disappeared um, and seeing kids being stopped at the border. Uh, they, take, they take a plane ticket to, to 
again, Syria or, or other countries, and they're being stopped at the border. Sometimes they go through and we see them and they're like Maxime something or that is even more surprising than everything else, I think, for the for the French. And again, it's not being covered in an inflammatory way, but certainly it's surprising to a lot of people. And we are wondering what we can do about it, why it's happening, because there's a lot of disbelief and, and um, lack of understanding, like how could this happen and what can we do uh, to fix it? Um, so that's been a, a, a topic of discussion in the past couple of weeks, I would say. Patrick, uh, I, I think this, this um, has been much more prevalent in, uh, in the media where people have, have gone, have come from mm. and gone and joined these organizations. So France is obviously one and the United States is, is definitely one where an individual might go and join one of these organizations and then the media takes it and runs with it because it's, it's so topical to the country. Uh, but in in South Africa, that hasn't happened at all, and it really hasn't been a part of our our reporting at all. It's, mm. it's funny because coming from when I when I was in the states, I mean, it was obviously a hot button topic, like you you said. But coming here, it was a non issue, um, mm. and I, I thought that was really interesting. And it's it's because it, it it hits home with people who are in their country, right? You're from France, you you know what it's like to be in France and then you see someone leaving that place to go join one of these organizations. So it, it kind of hits home for you, you know, you, yeah, uh, sure. whereas somebody who's like, well, I, I don't think there's any South Africans from that I know of that have joined hmm. these organizations, even though we have a decent size Muslim, um, uh, population, uh, I don't think anybody has gone hmm. there from South Africa and maybe yeah, which they I think- did. It's fair to say often the, the Muslim organizations and these extremist organizations don't have a lot in common. They don't have a lot to exactly. do with one another, yes. right? Um, before we go to Tom for the American perspective, <laughs> um, I'm curious about Vietnam. Uh, for, no, for, you know, there's is not it, much. It's it's not really a, there's really no connection to Vietnam whatsoever. And in Vietnam, this is not an issue that they, that they follow mm-hmm. very closely. Uh, China is a very different story, though. Um, there are Chinese who are participating in ISIS and who are doing the same thing as the French. Um, and I think a lot From of people China. forget. Well, wow. see, again, That's... you have that surprise. But yeah, yeah. Um, think about that. 50% of all Iraqi oil goes to China. Uh, think mm. about the fact that the Chinese have, are very, very tough on Muslims in, in, in Xinjiang province. Uh, both al-Qaeda and ISIS have identified China as an, a, as a same, ther- t- same en- level of enemy as the United States because of the... The, the heavy oppression and crackdown on Muslims in Western China. Um, and the Chinese interest in the Middle East and in the Gulf Zone particularly and in the ISIS areas is very, very pronounced. Chinese special forces have been deployed there. Uh, again, China has an oil footprint now that is as large as the United States. In fact, I think even larger than the United States now in the Middle East. So China is a very important player in all of this, unbeknownst to, to most uh, mm-hmm. in the West, who, again, one of the problems I think – you're reflecting in many ways is this kind of lack of uh, self-reflection that we have in the United States and in, in, in Europe of being able to look at our own cultures and, and see shortcomings in the cultures that are driving so many youth. So you say, well, how could these young Frenchmen, you know, abandon their, their, their suburban white, you know, lower middle class life? 
Well, in a society that has 25 to 35 percent youth unemployment and really no prospects for youth employment, where you know you're not going to be richer than your parents, where you know your professional and career and academic opportunities are, are really very, very limited, where the banlieue in Paris is filled with nothing but hopelessness because they can't get jobs. And then yet the French media and the French narrative is, well, you know, quelle horreur. how could they possibly want to give all this up and go to, you know, go, go to fight? And at the same time, taking into account that ISIS has been so good, I mean, awesome in their marketing, in their social media techniques. It is, and, and, and really, they have evolved marketing to, to a new level in that way. You see the production quality on their videos. And I don't say this out of necessarily flattery. I say it out of admiration in their ability to, to convey and to recruit. And in some ways, in my last point on this, for, you know, for the tech journalists here who, you know, I've got two who are incredible. Um, this, is, this is a classic question of order and chaos, and order hates chaos, and ISIS is chaos. You know, ISIS is what Linux is to IBM or Microsoft. Uh, you know, I <laughs> well, mean, really, it is. And they can't fight it because there is okay. nothing you can do. Yeah. It's an amorphous... Different consequences, but same disruption. I get what you're saying. But it isn't, it's very disruptive. And yet the established kind of dominant players in the industry cannot do... They can do anything they want, but they can't kill it because ISIS at the end of the day is really an idea as much as anything else. And I don't, again, I'm not saying that in support of them, but it's very hard to kill no, an idea. For sure. And I think it's, it's super important to understand uh, this, what it is um, as, as a whole, period. Um, so, yeah, Tom, the American perspective on this. <laughs> yeah, I was joking before uh, that, you know, we, we invented this story back in the 90s uh, <laughs> because even, even during the Clinton administration, there was a lot of talk about terrorism and, and Islamic terrorists. And there were stories being done about American boys, always boys, uh, going over and, and, and joining them and being brainwashed. And that's kind oh, of by been, the way. Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of girls doing it as well by the way um there's yeah just wanted to mention this because it's true the image we have is uh boys going to to fight but there are uh, a significant amount of women also yeah uh, because that's always the way the story is told is yeah um i and so yeah it doesn't seem like the narrative on this has really changed it's always been a certain amount of how could we have let these Americans get brainwashed into doing this, although it's often started to be mixed with these foreigners who didn't appreciate becoming Americans and turning against us. That's that's uh. that's thrown in there sometimes as a as a sort of an overtone. It's it's not necessarily always explicitly said that way, uh, but it's it's always a failure of the person or the system. It's never the responsibility. And when I say the system, actually, I should I should say it's a failure of of some other operation like well we shouldn't have allowed these websites to exist is the current one right that mm. that that brainwash people but it's never the fact of of the economic indicators or or the way you know the society that people were brought up or the opportunities they were presented with uh it's it's usually and there's that lack of self-reflection that's right yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's I, usually done as 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 sort of like these other people were allowed to spread their message and trick mm our boys into joining. I, I, I have to say, it's when, when I hear you say it, 
I'm my first reaction is like, ah, oh, those American media, how could they, you know, distort the truth like that? Or how convenient that they're not mentioning this or that, or then that they're not looking at the situation the way it really is. When, of course, when I think about it for an extra, for another two seconds, uh, we're doing exactly the same thing in France. We, we're not talking about the uh, disenfranchisation uh, of, of these kids, or at least not prominently enough. Because I think this is a problem. The real problem is one that's almost impossible to solve, or at least not easy to solve at all. Intellectually, you have to, to dive into very complex discussions if you want to try and solve poverty in, in, uh, in the suburbs. Um, but if you say, well, this website said, come and fight the jihad, let's close down this website. And that's an easy concept to grab, right? So it's a lot Yeah, it's a lot easier. And, and Americans, the, what's, what's interesting about the U.S. is that there's very, there's no discussion whatsoever that ISIS in many ways is a product, uh, is a creation of the United States. That is that the, the, a lot of the senior officials inside of ISIS are dis disaffected Iraqi military who were disenfranchised uh, through the occupation. Uh, and the, the, the bumbling of the American occupation of Iraq led in some ways, not entirely, but part of it, uh, to the, to the, To, to what has become ISIS today in terms of the financing methods, the people who are staffing it, and the disaffected military that's there, um, particularly the Sunni areas. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's, there's certainly affiliation there, but I, do you think it should be, uh, it's, it's a direct consequence? I mean, if it wasn't ISIS, wouldn't it be another group? I guess the real question we have to ask is that if Iraq... If the war had not happened, would ISIS be there today? Now, we will never know. It's a hypothetical. Um, and, and ISIS, I think, is a creation of a lot of different things. And so it's not fair to put all of the blame on the United States. It certainly is not. Uh, but in many, I mean, Assad is part of it. Uh, in Syria, we, we even see the, the, the harshness of the, uh, you know, of the Shiites in, uh, in, 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 uh, in, in Baghdad as well. Maliki didn't, you know, is very much a part of the, the father of this as well. So there's a lot of fathers. There's definitely a lot of fathers. But uh, the United States, I would say, bears uh, a, some responsibility for all this, given their mishandling of the Iraq occupation. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think that's going to do it for our international stories, international topics. Um, how about we cover a few? Honestly, I don't really have one huge local story I think is worth uh, mentioning. We usually in this show go with a few international stories and then each one of us tries to bring in a, a local story and then maybe a weird, silly story as well to, uh, to, to finish the show with a, a little bit of a smile. Um, but Local story-wise, there would be the return of uh, ex-president Nicolas Sarkozy, who is saying that he's going to revert the uh, Equal Marriage Act, what is effectively the Equal Marriage Act, uh, which he can't do. So there's a lot of pandering there, which, yeah. Um, and, and the fact that our president is now uh, uh, almost officially with his girlfriend, Um, the one that he was caught going to uh, on a scooter a few months ago. I'm sure that made, you know, international news because it was probably worth it, I would say, uh, laugh-wise. Um, so there is a couple of things there, but nothing that warrants 
huge discussions uh unless you know you guys think they do um but do, do you guys have any local stories of interest you want to discuss before we move on to our uh fun uh kicker stories Well, it's not a huge one, uh, but here in Los Angeles, I think uh, it, I, I like to try to make my local story not just be the U.S., but where I'm actually living. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, way undercovered has been a nine-day trucker strike, both in the Los Angeles and Long Beach ports. Wait, strike? Isn't that yeah. the privilege of the French? I know. I thought you would appreciate this, Patrick. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for thinking of us. Yeah, sure. Uh, Pacer International and Harbor Rail Transport uh, essentially shut down the ports. This is a huge port in Los Angeles. Uh, they began on November 13th. They just settled it yesterday. Uh, so, you know, it's, I don't have much to say. I haven't dug into the story, but it's something I've been kind of keeping an eye on because if it had continued to go on, it would start to have actual effects on people's lives that were noticeable, especially during the holiday season. And it really just was ignored as a story. It's funny. I think there's, there's a lot of, um, uh, preconception that the US doesn't have unions and doesn't have strikes. I think in the in in Japan as well there's a lot of people think well they never strike they never you know when they go on strike they put the this little armband that signifies we're on strike and that's so silly. I'm talking about the perspective from France because mm. as we pointed out striking is a daily sport here. Um but in the US the unions are strong. And they do go on strike from time to time because, but the unions are at least that the, that's the way I see it. They're a partner that you have conversations with before the converse, the lines of communication break down, and you have to go on strike rarely to express your discontent. Whereas in France, it's been getting better, uh, but strike is very often not the first uh, uh, recourse, but. One of the first recourse, like you go on strike, you pull the trigger on the strike a lot more easily than you do in the U.S., but it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen or that there aren't unions um, in the U.S., right? Yeah, like and, and it was really interesting was that the dock workers union did not go on strike but refused <laughs> – basically turned away trucks from the two companies that the, the truckers were striking against. <laughs> Funny. Um, all right. So unless there's another... Well, let me just give one very... The, the big story that everybody's following over here, and I'm not sure if you've heard about it, is uh, David Beckham came to Vietnam to promote a whiskey. Okay. Uh, that was uh, not unusual that uh, he goes around the world kind of promoting uh, some of his endorsements. But uh, while he was here, he took a picture uh, from, his, from his motorcade of a woman who was taking a picture of him on her cell phone. It just so happens that she was riding a motorbike, which in Vietnam, that's all we do here. Everybody rides motorbikes, uh, with no helmet, and she had a baby between her legs, uh, kind of standing also with no helmet, and she's riding one hand, taking a picture. Now, what's funny is that, he, and he, she posted that up on, uh, he posted that up on his Facebook page. It got 700,000 likes. And I guess what everybody here is just laughing about is because, well, very, you know, in, in Saigon, everybody wears a helmet, but helmet is a very loose word of what they, they do it. In Hanoi, people less so. But children are not actually required by law to wear helmets here. And so it's very common that people are texting, uh, riding, and having kids on their motorbikes at the same time. But yet this time, the rest of the world actually saw it through David Beckham's Facebook page. And <laughs> shock and horror, after 700,000 uh, you know, uh, likes on, uh, on Facebook, uh, the poor woman who snapped the picture now is being prosecuted for uh, traffic penalties, breaking traffic laws. So wow. there you go. All because of David Beckham. 
<laughs> so did it did it become like a real concern? Is there going to be different legislation going to be no. you know studied or no? Okay, no, it's just no, no. okay. All right, all right. It just it, 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 a little bit of uh, of embarrassment to the outside world. Mm. Well, thank God for David Beckham. Um, so, so yeah. uh, some of the, there's been obviously a, a lot of uh, hot button topics that have come out of South Africa recently. Obviously, the Oscar Pretorius case. There's the minor uh, strike case. Um, and Shirin Devani, which is another um, murder that's happened in South Africa. These have all been very hot-button to- topics. But one of the big ones in South Africa at the moment is, and it's been an ongoing um, thing, where the the, the president, uh, Jacob Zuma, had uh, used uh, government funds to improve his house to do renovations, and he spent about 20, 20 um, million U.S. dollars to do the renovations. And um, it's obviously at the taxpayers' expense. It was for upgrades that weren't security-related, and there's been a lot of um, um, discussions in the news. And even in our parliament has been uh, up in arms at the moment because the, the majority party is in support of him. And a lot of people feel that they're trying to cover up what's happened and uh, the rest of the parties that are in, in parliament are are up in arms i mean they brought in the riot police at uh, one of the one of the um when everyone was was talking about the topic in parliament the other day it's it's been wait, quite wait, a hard the riot thing. police in the parliament yeah it, they they what? brought in the they brought in the riot police because um all of the uh, all of the individual parties kind of rallied together because our one, the ANC in South Africa has majority um, rule in parliament. They are, I think, 60-something percent. And um, the rest of the parties feel that um, the ANC is covering up this issue and just trying to sideline it. And um, every party went up and spoke very, very... um, dramatically enthusiastically i mean we were all watching it on tv it was quite it was quite entertaining but serious at the same time because of some of the things people were saying and and everybody's kind of standing up against it but it's just a question of how where it's going to go at this stage because um what they were talking about in parliament at that stage was uh another report that was put out to discredit the original report that we have a public protector put out um, so yeah, that's that's one of the big hot button topics at the moment here in South Africa. So corruption is still a very real uh-huh. issue. I guess it is everywhere. It's kind sure. of disingenuous to say because yeah, but the, um, the biggest thing is that it's so blatant, and mm. uh, the people. Um, I mean, politics in South Africa is a very interesting thing, as it is in every country. But um, the the how apparent the corruption has been with the one leading party at the moment is really starting to sway a lot of voters. And we've seen a lot of interesting um, uh, candidates come out of that. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting few years. And this has really helped, I think, in terms of persuading voters to look Mm -hmm. at other options. Uh, When are the elections? Uh, The elections recently just happened. So they happened... uh, so and they voted in still in favor of the the majority party but um 
it was a lot less than it's ever been. It's the lowest mm-hmm. that they've ever had. And a lot more seats in parliament have been given to other parties, which is great. It's great to have that diversity. Mm-hmm. But there's still one majority. So, yeah, very interesting at the moment in South Africa. Mm. Okay. Thank you for that uh, riveting report. And I think we're going to uh, conclude the show with... The the one story I really wanted to talk about, unless you guys have, you know, fun, silly stories as well. Um, I will tell you about the tale of the French suburbs tiger. There, a few, I guess a week ago, there was a report of a, um, a tiger uh, uh, roaming the countryside in France. Um, and of course, it was completely. Um, uh, uh, it was unbelievable because where would the tiger come from? Um, it was close to um, uh, Euro Disney, Euro Disneyland, um, and so a lot of people, you know, started making jokes that uh, it was probably Tigger from uh, <laughs> you know Disneyland that had escaped and we were hoping that it wouldn't tickle people too much and things like that uh, that that was funny but it was actually a big story for for a few days um and apparently we found out after I don't know. So they called in the military. They called in specialists from, uh, I think, Finland, uh, actually, um, because they are used to tracking um, to tracking uh, uh, bears. And they thought, you know, what the hell do we know about tigers? Uh, we'll, we'll get someone who knows about wild animals, at least. Why don't they go to somewhere where there are tigers? Yeah, I don't know. I have it's, no idea. Okay, and never mind. I, I don't know. And and the, the kicker is, um, apparently, it was just a cat. We found out that it was um, just, I can't remember which kind of, you know, cat. It wasn't like a big cat, big cat. It wasn't a house cat, but uh, it was a, a just um, a lynx um, that, or something similar to lynx, that was just uh, uh that was just that has just uh, escaped from somewhere um and oh no sorry i'm sorry i said a lynx it was a fox uh, <laughs> what did it say it was it was <laughs> yeah exactly and it was a fox and apparently the very surprising thing was apparently someone had taken a picture of it and that's why people started believing that it was a tiger but like how could you it's So, a, so the military fox. was um, brought to attention for a fox that was roaming yes, in the... exactly. And we flew in some experts from Finland <laughs> to get the freaking fox. So, yeah, there you go. French efficiency at its best. Uh, so, we haven't heard yet if the fox was on strike for something. <laughs> so we had a, we had a similar uh, thing happen in South Africa a couple Except of years ago. Except it was ago. a real tiger who ate it, people. It, right? was, it, it was a real tiger. <laughs> And um, his name was Panjo, uh, if I remember, and he he got loose. It was someone's pet tiger. You shouldn't have pet tigers, but yeah, that's someone's... that's one of the theories that we had in France as well. Someone who who had a pet tiger, illegal pet tiger, that got eaten or something, and the tiger you know escaped. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but yeah, we we had one, and it was the same thing where the the country was. I mean, the country was was going crazy. People were creating Twitter accounts for Panjo, and they were saying free <laughs> pa- Panjo the Tiger posters were created. It was quite a quite an interesting uh, news story. In the end, he he was captured, and I think he was put in a reserve somewhere. But um, yeah, it was it was it was a very interesting <laughs> news story. Yeah, so tiger loose all around the world. There you go. We've got coyotes all over the place here. Oh, maybe we and could. Bo- have you got you bobcats guys. down there too, don't you? Up yeah, in the hills, real, there are bobcats too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that, that, that's a real like they can do damage. Not that you know a fox can't do damage, but usually it just we just ask what it says and it goes away. <laughs> um, all right, anyone else, or should we put this show, uh, bring this show to a close? Right. I think that's going to be it. Um, that was a, f- a fun episode and serious as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on. Um, please tell the audience where they can find more of you guys on the Internet or, you know, somewhere else if you want to. Um, let's start with Tom. Uh, sure. TomMerritt.com. It's spelled with two R's and two T's. Uh, actually, two M's because it's all run together as one word. And that has all of the things that I do, the books I write, podcasts I do. And, of course, Daily Tech News Show, DailyTechNewsShow.com, where Patrick is a contributor once a week. Yeah, there you go. If you want your shows, your tech news uh, on a daily dose, that's where you should go. Uh, Eric, how about yourself? Yeah, the best way is to head over to China Africa Project, all one word, uh, ChinaAfricaProject.com. That's, uh, that's the website. with. Uh, we're just launching a brand new newsletter, a weekly newsletter uh, with our blogs, our tweets, our podcasts, everything all that comes out once a week. But uh, we also have a very, very dynamic Facebook page at Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Again, uh, about a quarter of a million people, mostly from Africa and South Asia, but all over the world, kind of having a great conversation every day on, uh, on what the Chinese are doing in Africa. And finally, uh, we have a podcast, uh, myself and Kobus van Staden from Witz University in Johannesburg. Uh, we get together uh, twice a week and do a podcast on the latest issues, uh, doing a lot like what we're doing here t- today. So uh, look for us on iTunes. Just look for China Africa Project. And you can follow me on Twitter at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. And uh, Patrick, just congratulations again for the show being back up and really just humbled and honored to be here today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm Honestly, I'm so happy that I could bring the show back. So, um, yeah, I'm really, really, really glad to, to be back on the air, um, which I'll tell a couple more words about in a second after Paolo has had a chance to tell us if he's doing something on the internet or not. Um, yeah, well, you can find me on uh, Twitter or Instagram at uh, Josie Paolo. And um, yeah, that's the best place to find what I'm up to these days. Um, yeah, that's the best place to... Jo- Josie Paolo is um, G-J-O-Z-I. Ah, there you go. J-O-Z-I, Josie Paolo. There you go. All right. Thank you very much, Paolo. And uh, as I was saying, I'm, I'm super excited to be back on the air. Um, and it's really a show that I've, I think is both something really strange and, and incredible because it's, it 
talks about important topics and we have like even sometimes a little bit adversarial conversations. I mean, I didn't mention Turkey in the beginning. Uh, Turkey was a, a very uh, prominent co-host of the show. Uh, he's not on the show yet. Maybe he's going to come back at some point, but he's very busy. Um, but we'll see. Maybe we'll get him come, to come back. But especially with him, with we had lots of uh, fun adversarial conversations. And I think we've uh, uh, been true to that heritage here today. And about super serious topics, but at the same time, we're keeping, you know, we're re remaining friendly and, and uh, we're staying friends and we're having fun discussing these, sometimes not a huge amount of fun, but in the end, it's all in good, good humor and good, uh, good conversation. And I think that's something that's missing uh, from a lot of the media narrative that we're getting uh, all around us, not no one particularly at fault, but For for this show, I think it works and it fits. It that kind of thing should not exist, right? Should not be possible. Like discussing these uh, controversial topics uh, with people from all of these different locations, but still remaining uh, uh, ca casual and, and fun, and and it works here. So I'm super happy to be bringing back the show because I think it's important and fun and you know informational uh, and so if you dear listener uh agree and if you think that's a, an interesting show um i'd encourage because now i'm a, a professional podcaster my my activity online is where i get my uh my revenue from <laughs> um and so i i launched a patreon which is a type of crowdfunding for for the show uh and if you think the show is worth uh staying on the air um i'd encourage you to go to the patreon page and look at the video where i go over what i've been saying here maybe in a little bit more detail and um and consider um, giving a, a couple of bucks, uh, whatever you think is appropriate, um, to the show um, if you think it's worth it. Uh, there's a lot of people using Patreon nowadays uh, to finance these kinds of shows. So it's certain, it, it's probably not the first time you've heard of it, um, but it's something that works and that is a, a credible alternative to, to add financing. And I think in this case, it's completely, it completely makes sense uh, to have a Patreon for the show. So uh, anyway, you can find that at patreon.com slash the Phileas Club and Phileas is P-H-I-L-E-A-S as The, the first name for Phileas Fogg. That's where the name came from. Uh, so please go and uh, take a look at that if you think it's worth it. And uh, you can also follow me on uh, on uh, Twitter at uh, NotPatrick. That's the name I've been using for a long time. And you can find this show and others uh, at FrenchSpin.com, which is the website where I host uh, the shows I produce. So you can go there and uh, find the show notes and comment on the episode we We've done today and maybe you disagree completely with everything uh, we've said you can let us know that uh, on that website it's frenchspin.com so again thank you so much uh, to my co-hosts for the show for uh, the first show of the relaunch thank you so much to you guys uh, listening to this show and uh, we'll see you in about a month for the next episode see you then bye everyone bye